All right, students, today we're going to talk about um, the last several cantos or and uh, or excuse me, terraces of purgatory. We're going to talk about terrace four, five, six, seven at rapid pace. And so we're not going to be very slothful today. We're going to go through as far as we can, cantos 17 through 27, missing some parts but hitting some parts with quite some impact. And if today goes as it is supposed to go, you will know the origin of Santa Claus by the end of today as well as see an Italian rap battle. All right, so we saw the slothful. They appear in a tumult like a furious crowd of Picantes running and weeping. Hurry, hurry, and let no time be lost through lack of love. So what we know about the slothful is that A, sloth is a vice or error of losing time, of taking too much time to do something, of having a weakness of will. And if life or any endeavor is a timed process, then does doing it slower help you to get done faster and get what you want faster? No, obviously that is a contradiction in terms. So what is the exemplary virtue that goes alongside sloth? It is zeal or eagerness. That, uh, and in fact, interestingly enough, US students, the word studeo in Latin means to be eager, to be eager. And so to be slothful seems to be like balakwa, to sit around and do that which uh, does not further you towards your goals, whereas to be eager means you are up and down. You do as much as you can to achieve your goals as possible. And so we have two examples here. So, and these are shouted out by weeping spirits in front of their fellow penitents. And so now the spirits themselves are yelling out what it is that we're hearing. No longer a disembodied voice, no longer a sculpture represented in front of us. This is coming from the spirits themselves and we have two examples as usual the first one is a new testament mary example and it is about mary rushing to the house of her friend elizabeth and zachary because elizabeth was very very pregnant and if you're very very pregnant and about to have a baby does time matter absolutely more than anything and so mary rushes to get there so she does not miss something and i think that's an interesting idea suggesting that the faster you move the more you see in the world and the less you miss out on and that certainly seems to be true well the second example is a very famous example of julius caesar one thing you may not know about julius caesar is that generally considered his the key to his success as a military strategist tended to be his ability to mobilize his troops faster than other troops if your military moves faster than another military then you will have a major advantage especially uh, at his time when you were, you know, you were carrying around your own, own stuff, you had horses, you know, you had some pack animals, you had your own feet, but you didn't have things like tanks or planes or aircraft carriers. Um, so being able to move your troops to motivate them to go faster uh, was part of the key to his success. In fact, uh, a very legendary number I heard, which is obviously untrue, but says something about just how fast people thought Julius Caesar was, and especially when he... Uh, engaged in combat in the Gallic War against the German barbarians, as they were called by the Romans, he was, he was said to have been able to cover 100 miles a day. 100 miles a day on foot or with horses, that's a pretty long amount. I think the most I've ever gone on foot is something like 20. And so to be fully weighed down with, uh, you know, all my pack materials, for you know how I would stay, or and all my food materials and my spear, my shield, all of that, and to still make that sort of ground, or to make any ground uh, anywhere approximating that would be incredible. All right, moving forward, moving forward. So 
Examples of sloth. We have two good ones here that I'm going to share. Uh, one is the followers of Moses during Exodus. And I'm not sure why I don't see everybody writing this right now. Um, the followers of Moses during Exodus, well, they do a few things. They seem to have some incredulity. That means a lack of belief in, in the progress. And Well, you know, they're, they were in Egypt and now they're out in the desert. And this desert doesn't have much fruit. It makes some sense. That said, they offer some resistance to Moses. They, they transgress a little bit. They get, into, they get into tiffs with each other. All of this is to say that these moments add up. And because of the add up of these moments, these people never make it to the promised land, Jerusalem. In fact, neither does Moses because he doesn't seem to handle the situations perfectly. Well, there's a very similar story to this in the Greco-Roman literature. You recall from the Aeneid last year that in book five, after Aeneas's ships get burned by the Trojan women under the influence of Iris and Juno, that, well, Aeneas is with his friend Acestes on Sicily, and he says, well, not everybody wants greatness, Aeneas, so why don't you let the old men, the women, and the children stay? And so the idea seems to be that because these people did not have the energy or the eagerness to move on to the next challenge, they miss out on having their names left in history. They miss out on seeing what the Trojans would become, the people of Lavinium um, and Latium, and the people that would eventually become Romans. They miss out on being the ancestors to Romans. And so it seems like if you just, the things you do in life that cost you time, cost you more than time. They cost you accomplishment and perhaps even the accomplishment of your ultimate goal. And so, something well worth keeping in mind. All right, we gotta move, we gotta move. We talked about the dream of the witch. Basically, it's something that looks ugly when you're far from it, but when it gets close to you, it looks beautiful. We said that that is sort of like how a sensual pleasure is. When you see the effects clear-eyed of a sensual pleasure, like say, cigarette smoking, you, you see the blackened lungs of a 30-year smoker, you think, ew, why would anybody ever do that? But then, perhaps, if you allow yourself to try the addictive substance and the nicotine gets into you and the THC, then you might find yourself addicted. And then you might find that the experience of smoking the cigarette is very pleasant at a sensual level, but what is happening to your lungs that whole time, which you are now not focusing on? They're turning to blackness. And so this witch seems to be a siren. When you look at her for what she is, when you look at these pleasures for what they are, you see them for their ugly effects. But when you allow yourself to indulge in them, then you fail to see them for what they truly are and only focus on their pleasant, immediate effects. Gluttony, give me all the drink, all the food. Lust, give me all the kisses and all the valentines. And uh, of course, avarice, give me all the money, like Scrooge McDuck. Uh, and so, yeah, diving into your your pits of gold, into your pools of gold. All right, we talked about that. All right, let's move on to the avaricious and the prodigal cantos 19 through 21. And we'll talk just a very little bit about Statius because we met him some last time. So the souls on the fifth terrace purify themselves of their vice, avarice, or its sinful opposite, prodigality. So we have a dual of vice here, just as we did in the inferno as well. Well, they're lying face down on the hard rock floor, just as the, the slothful were rushing about eagerly. Well, they're weeping 
and they're praying, and they are themselves just like the slothful, calling out examples of greed, avarice, and it's opposing virtue. And it's opposing virtue, I looked into some of the scholarship on it, seems to be two, generosity or poverty. Now, generosity seems very close to charity, and that is the opposing virtue to envy, so I do recognize that. And I also recognize that poverty is itself not an act of virtue. What is it that you do to be impoverished? So I think what it is is to make yourself more impoverished by giving to others. I think that's the idea here, that to not mind your own poverty and to give without consideration for it. Something like that. It's something between those. Okay, cool. So we meet here, and you don't need to know much about him, but the reason I want you to see him is to show that Dante's not purely prejudiced. We saw, I think, four popes down in uh, the Inferno. We only see, I think, two in the Purgatorio, and we only see one in the Paradiso, indicating that a position of power makes it very hard to get where? To heaven, that's right, that's right. I think there's a quote about that, easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than to make it into the kingdom of God, which is very interesting. That seems to be a quote that is operant on this terrace. And so Pope Adrian V. Well, poor Pope Adrian V. He reminds me very much of one of our American presidents, whose name drops out of my mind, uh, who, who lived only a little more than a month after his election to the papacy in 1276. And he explains how this prostrate position is fitting punishment for the neglect of spiritual matters and excessive attachment to worldly goods. For some of this information, I, I have sourced uh, Dante Worlds that the University of Ta Texas Austin puts out as a very useful resource. This pope, the first safe pope encountered by journeying Dante, tells his visitor not to kneel because they are now equal uh, before the eyes of God. I like this for two reasons. A, it's the first pope we see in Purgatorio, you should know that. B, he says even though he had this position in the world of pope that might befit somebody kneeling in front of him, now on the Purgatorio, are there any human ranks? Answer, no, because everybody's doing what on the Purgatorio? The same thing. And so you can see a democratic element to the Purgatorio because if the Purgatorio models life and what's recognized by all the spirits on the Purgatorio is their fundamental equality under the eyes of God, well, who else? recognizes their fundamental equality under the eyes of God. Who's alive right now? That would be every American, right? And he even says it on our money. God we trust. So that means that we recognize that we are equal. We are equal. And well, do you know who the guarantor of that trust is? It says it on your money. There you go. All right. That's sort of the, the uh, you might say, the intellectual. That is part of the intellectual foundation underlying democracy and specifically our democracy and part of why we teach this text. All right, let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. All right, we met Statius. Very, very quickly about him because I've said this, but you need to know all of this. Statius is amongst the avaricious and the prodigal. Thing you need to know first, he was prodigal, not avaricious. That means he, he was very liberal with his spending, not very conservative with it. The avaricious ones, the ones who hoard the money, far more conservative in their efforts, more like Scrooge McDuck. The prodigal, far more libertine-like or liberal with their spending, free with their spending. That's what he was. Sort of like if you were them. That he does fill out the idea of an artist very well in that way. And so he was from the first century AD or CE. 
He was a great admirer of Virgil. This is something very sad. This is the most famous metaphor that he speaks. He says of Virgil that he was like a guide. You are as one who holds a light behind himself. Which means, and this is a paraphrase, that the light of Virgil's intellect did how much good for himself? Zero. And he's unsaved. And he lives in limbo inside of hell. But the light of his intellect did much for what for those who came after him. Quite some bit. And in fact, Statius will admit that it was a quote from Virgil in his fourth eclogue, which I might have a chance to share with you, and I don't know if I have on this presentation, that it was in fact a quote from the fourth eclogue that converted Statius to Christianity, which Statius considered the least, not that fair a thing, because had Virgil been aside, or had Virgil been alive when Statius had been alive, clearly he would have seen the truth of his prophecy and converted and been able to make it to heaven. So that's sort of a, a sad thing to think about within the scope of the narrative. Okay, his sin is expurgated and met with an earthquake. So just as when Zeus nods his head in ascent in the Iliad and causes an earthquake, just as when the Theomachy happens and Zeus allows the gods to return to the battle and there is an earthquake, so there is an earthquake on Purgatory, or Mount Purgatory, when a sin expurgates. It uh, finally expurgates its uh, sin, which in, uh, which seems to mean that it's sort of a rare thing because we haven't felt many earthquakes while we've been going up this mountain the last few days. And remember, we're on this mountain for three days, and we leave on the fourth. That's why there are three dreams, three nights. Um, so Statius will also help to guide Dante. Now, something interesting about him and something we learn about the scope of Purgatory's time. He spent 400 years amongst the slothful, 500 amongst the prodigal. 400 and 500, 900 years. And the slothful, they have to like run around all day. But then the prodigal and the avaricious, they have to stare at the ground. It's like super timeout. I mean, isn't that what your teachers used to make you do for timeout? Like put your head down on the desk or put your head down on something so you couldn't even see anything? I recall that quite a bit uh, from those days. That's why I lecture all day long as a living nowadays. Uh, but the reason why Statius was amongst the slothful for 400 years is that he was actually a late repentant. He, because he feared persecution by the Romans, because the Romans did persecute the early Christians because they found them rather bizarre, and some of them thought they were cannibals. If you think about the language beyond the host, that makes sense. You eat the body and the, drink the blood of the Savior. If you don't understand that that's a metaphor, then you think that sounds pretty weird. Um, and, well... Because he feared that persecution, or at least this is what Dante portrays to us, it took him a, a longer time to admit that he was Christian than he otherwise would have. And, you know, fear of persecution is a very real reason that people keep their beliefs silent, uh, even to today. Even to today, of course. Uh, people don't like to be persecuted. All right, good. I'm going to quickly, quickly, quickly go through these examples. So, we've been in praying the shades themselves called the examples of greed. Uh, but first, we're going to have the examples of generosity or poverty. So, Mary, first example like usual. Her poverty is evident. The spirits proclaim from the extremely modest circumstances in which she gave birth to Jesus. And this is from Luke 2.7. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. So, poverty. Not much more impoverished than having to give than to be a migrant 
searching for refuge at an inn that then does not have room for you so that you have to stay out amongst the animals and then give birth to a child there. That's a pretty impoverished sounding situation to me. That'd be like the equivalent now to you not being able to find a hospital and having to like give birth in a tub, but not a tub for humans, a tub for dogs or something like that. Um, I can't, it's hard for me to even think of falling to this level. But that said, uh, I, I don't know that this is supposed to be an example of generosity. Perhaps it was considered generous that the innkeeper gave her even something and that she was okay with even getting that. But I think the idea is that if you are capable of dealing with poverty, even extreme poverty, that will cure you of avarice because you will under, because rather than attempting like the envious to acquire as much as you could, can in order to cure yourself of your greed, perhaps the cure of greed is having even less and understanding how to live with that. Which is interesting because I do think that part of the sort of return to nature movement or going out to hike is us trying to stem in our own avarice. When you go out to hike, do you have access to plumbing, electricity? Are you clean? How's the food? Not that great. How about the sleeping conditions? Great. Uh, is it cold? Does it get really hot? Yes, all of that. What does that remind you of? How little you could have and how if you did not have all of what civilization offers and how much you do have every day of your life and what does that do to your life? Make it worse or better? Realizing how much you have. It makes it better. That's right. It makes you more grateful. That's right. All right, very good, very good, very good. All right, this next uh, example, you don't actually need to write down everything about him except for his name. So good Fabricius, or good Fabricius, as they would have said. This guy is very similar to the, uh, a very famous character called Cincinnatus. He was twice a consul. Consuls were like their presidents, but there would be two at a time in uh, ancient Republican Rome. Well, so strong was Fabricius's loyalty to the state that he could not be bought off with lavish gifts preferring instead to remain in poverty as an ordinary citizen. So, he was a Roman who remained in poverty rather than accept gifts or wealth which would corrupt him. So the idea seems to be that he would prefer to stay poor in order to maintain his integrity than to be rich and be corrupt. And there is something, there is something underlying this story uh, uh, that you could connect to the the Roman Catholic Church and its acceptance of gifts. That, and you could also accept, you could also connect this to the Trojan horse and the Trojans' acceptance of the Greek gift. Do all gifts make you richer? No. Some might, in ways you don't even recognize, make you much poorer. And this is something we take very seriously, especially with our politicians now. We do not much care if they're corrupt and in fact it's a federal crime we'll take them to court in fact that sort of thing is uh happening just right now and is always big news always big news so this guy preferred to stay in poverty rather than to have greater power or wealth in order to maintain the power of his people and perhaps that is how a democracy maintains its power that its people place the strength of the people above their own personal acquiring of wealth we do follow rules very well in the West. All right, good. This last guy, I just need you to know his name, then I'm gonna tell you a story very quickly. This is Nicholas. He is an example of generosity saving people from poverty. This is Nicholas who becomes Saint Nicholas to all of you. And I think uh, early in December, I don't know if any of you celebrated, there was uh, Nicholas Tog, which is the day when you put your shoes out 
uh, outside of your bedroom and uh, candy is put inside of them. I, I believe it's sort of a Germanic um, uh, tradition. Well, this guy, I'm gonna tell you this story just very quickly. Saint Nicholas, and this is taken from Dante Wilde, venerated by both the Greek and the Roman churches, was a fourth century Bishop of Myra in Asia Minor, whose remains were brought to Bari, Italy in the 11th century. He was known as Nicholas of Bari. We'll know him as Saint Nick. The episode recited by the penitents was well known from the Golden Legend, or the Lives of the Saints, compiled by Jacobus Vorent. Okay, okay, okay. Born to a wealthy family, Nicholas resolved to distribute his riches not to the praising of the world, but to the honor and glory of God. He acted on this promise, and this is where it gets interesting. Upon learning that a neighbor, an impoverished nobleman, intended to keep the family afloat, by prostituting his three daughters. Not that uncommon a thing to do. If you couldn't marry them off, they had to make money somehow. And so, and especially if you didn't have any money and you're a former nobleman, no longer a nobleman. Nicholas, horrified by this proposition, stealthily threw a bundle of gold into the man's house during the night. Thanking God, the neighbor used the gold to marry his oldest daughter. Nicholas repeated the procedure two more times, thus providing a dowry for all three daughters. The patron saint of sailors, bourbons, merchants, and thieves, among others, Nicholas is most widely recognized as Santa Claus, patron saint of children. Mm -hmm. Very good. So he used his wealth to give to the poor, sort of like a Robin Hood figure minus the stealing from the other wealthy people. And so that's where Saint Nick comes from. So I'm glad that I'm teaching this to you in December. All right. So. Good. Let's look at the examples now of those who were avaricious and came to ruin because of it. First example is one you know very well. Pygmalion. Pygmalion was the brother of Dido. Dido we know from books uh, 1 and 4 of the Aeneid last year. A very tragic love story with her and Aeneas. Well, her story was even more tragic than that, wasn't it? Because the reason that she had founded Carthage is because her brother Pygmalion who was the nephew, I found out, actually, of, um, of her husband, Sychaeus, kills her brother, Sychaeus, in order to take his wealth and rank as king. She later, of course, sees the ghost of Sychaeus, then steals that wealth back and goes to found Carthage, indicating that Pygmalion loses the wealth that he had acquired through murder and his sister and his nephew, <clears throat> And I might not have been right about the nephew bit, and half of his people, which means that try and get everything to yourself, lose what? Perhaps more than you even had in the beginning, right? Well, the second example is Midas. I feel like I don't even have to say this that much. Midas had a golden touch. He was known to touch everything, and it was made of gold, and it was made into gold. He then touched his daughter. She was then made into gold. Does making your daughter into an inanimate golden object make her more valuable or less valuable to you? Less valuable to you because the whole point of her is that she exists, you raise her, and possibly that she have a family after you and, you know, spread, sp spread down the old DNA. And so the idea is that a statue daughter is just not as valuable and that you might lose that which is most valuable to you in the pursuit of something that you think is valuable to you. And it's very similar to the Scrooge story, the Christmas Carol story, which I had the chance to see last Friday. I hope you see some version of it. Netflix has a lot of them. I think there's a Bill Murray version that I really like. You might be too young for it. It's called Scrooge. Uh, maybe, maybe watch it when you're seniors. 
All right, in any case, the third example is of polymnester. I only include polymnester because I make the claim during the Iliad that Polydorus dies at least in three different epics, maybe even in four, definitely in the Iliad, definitely in the Aeneid in a different way, and then again here in Dante, we get the story of Polymnester, who of course betrayed Polydorus. Uh, Polymnester took on the youngest son of Priam in order to save the Trojan line in case the Trojans should meet some unfortunate end. When Polymnester saw that Agamemnon was going to defeat the Trojans, he then killed Pol Polydorus, took the wealth that had been left with him, and uh, supposedly stabbed him so many times that he made a bush out of him. Uh, the, next, the next guy, uh, this lecture will be even more interesting next year. His name is Crassus. I only know one thing about him, he, or two things. He was a consul, and so much did he have a taste for gold that that's how he was killed. They actually took molten hot gold and poured it down his throat. And that's how they killed him. And so, molten hot gold, very good to eat. No, 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 no. So I suppose it only has limited value. Limited value. I just wanted to share that because if I'm going to teach you the story about the brazen bull and guys getting you know, turned into bushes because there's so many spears inside of them, you might as well learn about all the ways that we have metaphorically dealt with people. All right, let's get to the gluttonous. And they're not looking so hot right now. They're looking actually rather, rather drawn and thin. And so you can tell that part of their punishment is obviously to be starved and parched of thirst. So two remarkable trees rise up from different locations on the sixth terrace to excite desire and the spirits for food and drink only to frustrate this craving for the souls here expiate the sin of blood from the branches and leaves of each tree resounds an anonymous voice summarizing famous examples of temperance which is the expiating virtue the contrasting virtue of gluttony in one case and exemplary instances of gluttony in the other. And we're just going to go straight into these instances. So the first instance of temperance, again, a New Testament Mary example, they have not wine. We've seen this example before, vinum non habit. But in this case, what is being focused on is the state of desire is tempered by temperance. Uh, what is better to fight desire? Learning to deal with what one lacks or acquiring as much as possible, very similar to the idea I gave about avarice. I think that, again, you're seeing sort of the dad logic of the purgatorio here, that when you learn that you can do without something, that makes you stronger than simply giving into your desire so that you need more and more of something. It's sort of like the opposite of addiction, whereas addiction might be giving up more and more willpower in order to automate a habit. You might say that willpower is itself the capacity to restrain yourself from that which is not useful in the pursuit of your current goals or your overarching goals in general. Wasting time is never helpful for anything that you want to do. For, so, very good. So, Mary is, uh, this is supposed to comment on the fact that these people don't have wine, but they like the Who's down in Whoville after the Grinch steals their presents, still have Christmas. They still have a wedding even if they're missing something. They have what they need, is the idea. And so, the Roman women, they were, uh, supposedly according to Thomas Aquinas, uh, they were able to survive just off water for some period of time, so they were very uh, temperate women. Uh, the Golden Age humans, they supposedly just ate, uh, I think, nectar and ambrosia, very little, not very substantial foods. And then we have an example of John the Baptist who spent some time out in the desert eating locusts, eating bugs. Um, and so these are all examples of people who 
seemed to live noble and good lives, though they had very little to eat. So they were not consumed by their desire for food. Hmm, interesting. All right, well, the self-indulgent examples, I, I give you two of them. Just uh, One of them is very funny. One is weird funny. First example is one of centaurs. This is an example of gluttony or self-indulgence and how it can cause trouble for you socially. Well, the centaurs in Ovid's Metamorphoses, book 12, are invited to a wedding of the Lapleys. One of them, named Eurytus, gets drunk as can be. He, gets, he becomes a storm of drunkenness. And he decides to carry off the bride. <laughs> and so do a bunch of his friends. A huge fight breaks out, of course. And eventually Theseus takes some antique ball and crushes his skull with it. Which means, if you come drunk and try and steal a bride from a wedding, what might happen to you? Your gluttony might lead to your demise. Well, in this instance, we have a second instance. It's an Old Testament instance that I don't know a ton about. Uh, this guy named Gideon. Well, he was commanded to go free the Hebrews of oppression. A very typical motif in the Old Testament because the Hebrews were often oppressed. And so, he commanded his men not to drink of the river of a water with their tongues like dogs to lap up the water. Well, apparently 9,700 of his men did not keep his commandment. Only 300 did. That's only 3%. That magical three number there. And so, the only people he took with him to earn the honor of freeing Jerusalem or freeing the Hebrews from this current from that current oppression were those 300 men because they actually picked the water up with their hands and put it to their mouths. I suppose the idea is they were more sophisticated. They were more elect in some way or another. They were more elect because of the choices they made. So what they elected to do elevated them. Interesting there. All right, got to keep moving, got to keep moving. Okay, you don't need to write this. I only want to mention this guy because in these top two, uh, in these top two terraces, these final two terraces of gluttony and lust, we're going to meet four poets: Bonajunta, Forisi Donati, um, and you notice that Donati last name again, again. Yes, very good, very good, very good. Uh, we'll meet also Guido Guinizelli amongst the lust, the lustful, and Arno Daniel. One thing I just want you to note about this is that. Dante started his career as something of a love poet, was very much influenced by love poets. So the idea of self-indulgence in love poetry is going to be very closely tied together here. And in fact, remember that self-indulgence in love poetry was one of the very first lessons that we learned in the Inferno. Because who was one of the very first people we met? All the way back in Canto V, blown about by tempestuous winds, talking about Lancelot and kisses and cheating on her husband, yes. Francesca. We recall that she blamed the love story in a book for her own actions. And so now we have Dante confronting sort of like a bell curve, the end, which is also the beginning of his career, which will be interesting because we are going to get to a garden soon, which is also an end and a beginning. It's the beginning of all man, earthly paradise, but it's also the end of the journey of man, after he dies and goes up the purgatorio. And so the end is the beginning will be an interesting theme to continue on. And so uh, uh, here we go. Another poet on the terrace of Gluttony is Bonajunta. 
All I want you to know about him is he had a very high opinion of Dante and that he played an important role in the development of Italian lyric poetry, which drew its inspiration from the po Provenzal poetry of the troubadours. A Provençal poet, we will see, who will have the highest uh, rank of honor as poet in the Purgatorio will be Arno Daniel. We'll see him in just a couple minutes. All right, Bracey Donati. All you need to know are two things about him here. Obviously, he is the brother of Gemma Donati, who is the wife of Dante. He was a childhood friend of Dante in Florence, and he and Dante exchanged a series of sonnets in a literary genre known as Tenzone. So here's just a couple things about this before I share them with you, in which they honed their poetic craft by playfully and cleverly insulting one another in the basis terms. So, for instance, Dante will not so subtly hint that Foraci's dissolute ways, or that he invokes dissolute ways, and that he cannot satisfy his wife. While Foraci will implicate Dante's father in shady financial dealings. And so, and so I'm going to show you some of these uh, things that they say to each other just so that we can have a good amusing laugh at their expense for about a minute. Here are the tin zone. So Dante recalls uh, or tells Foraci that recalling their past life together would weigh heavily on them because he no doubt regrets the sort of crude body humor they each express so well in their useful poems. This shows a bit of Bildungsroman on Dante's part because we recall that down at the bottom of Purgatory, he was all too willing to indulge in past reflections and old-time hijinks, which was his friend who was a singer who he asked to sing a song for him, who he had to be reminded by Cato to move on from. Who can recall this? All right, this is going to be a fun final exam. His name was Casella. All right, let's move on to these Tenzone with Foraci. So, Dante feels sorry for Foraci's coughing wife, perpetually cold in bed. Her cough... Her cold and all her other fears are not because she is advanced in years, but only for some lack inside her nest. So, so there's some idea there that Faraci is just not the man that his wife wants him to be and so, thus gives him the cold shoulder. Uh, the morning after a coughing fit, Faraci expects to find pearls and gold coins in the graveyard, but instead comes upon an allegory. Dante's father tied in knots in a graveyard? And so that's... That's very interesting. So he's looking for gold in the ground, but instead he finds Dante's father. It's as if Dante's father is searching for gold amongst the dead. There, and let's see if we can pick something up here. One last one, ah oh, yes. To which Dante replies by linking Foraci's gluttony. This is 3A from Dante's lyric poems. Um, uh, 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 to which Dante link, or replies by linking Foraci's gluttony with criminal behavior into your throat. So much you have gulped down, you are now forced to steal what is not yours. So you've eaten so much that you now have to go to other people's house to get houses to get more food because you've eaten all the food that you have in your home. He's like a suitor from the opposite. All right, cool. Well, and why I think that is included is that uh, Dante and Ferrese self-indulgently indulged themselves in a low and vulgar dispute. Better uses of time, like the prophet, like the pro There are better uses of time. Uh, and this was the problem with the nostalgia in Casella earlier. Again, when you're just sitting, down, sitting around and indulging yourself in just eating without function or just sitting around and joking around and dissing your friend, what are you working towards? How are you using your time? Is that good goal-oriented time use? Doesn't seem so. All right, Tara 7, The Lustful, Cantos 25 to 27. All right, I'm going to... 
I'm going to cut it here, and we're going to start with the lustful tomorrow, and then we're going to move through earthly paradise. We've done great.